It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's broadcast is pre-recorded. giving up the place of an Egyptian, giving up the place of an Egyptian. The scriptures tell us that Moses was a fine child from birth, so much so that his mother and father did not want to drown him with a crocodile taking him 
in the river as Pharaoh had commanded. Instead, Mama made a basket, put pitch on the inside, a little bed for little Moses, put him in that basket with Miriam to watch. The Lord had a call on Moses' life. Pharaoh's daughter came and rescued him out of the water. Miriam was right there to say, would you like me to find a wet nurse for you? Oh, yes, go find one. Mama. God's provision was being worked out. And now Moses began to be trained in the school of the Egyptians. He was trained in all of the wisdom and occult understanding of the ages. He was trained in military strategy. He was a man both powerful and speech and deed, according to Stephen in the book of Acts. This man was the valedictorian. He was the best of the best. He was the strongest of the strong. He was fearless. He was like a lion. But one day, knowing the call of God that was on his life, he decided to go and see his people, the Hebrews, the descendants of Eber. He saw something that struck him in the heart. He saw an Egyptian slave master beating one of his people. He looked quickly to the left and to the right. And then he killed the Egyptian. He buried his body in the sand. And the next day went down again to see if he could start a revolution. This time he saw two sons of Eber fighting one with another. He interrupted the battle. And one of them said, who made you Lord and judge over us? And suddenly he knew that his murdering of this Egyptian taskmaster was known. It was public. Word soon came to Pharaoh He tried to kill Moses, but Moses ran for his life. All of this was being ordered by God. I mean, the running for his life. Moses thought that with his wonderful Egyptian education, with his military prowess, With his great intellect, he thought he could go down and make contact with the Hebrew slave people. And he could begin to organize a revolution. And they could overthrow their masters. Now, the word doesn't tell us whether he thought they could take over all of Egypt. But Pharaoh was afraid they would take over all of Egypt. Could I put it bluntly? Moses was full of himself. 
full of confidence, full of assurance. He was full of his own truth. He had an answer for anybody and everybody. He was sure he knew what was right for God's people. But when Pharaoh came against him, all of his wisdom went crashing to the ground, and he fled for his life. He went to Midian. We find the story, chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. I'll begin with verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. He was a hero. Do you understand there was something built deep into Moses' heart that hated a bully? He wanted to always take the side of the underdog. He was by very nature a protector. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? And they answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He he does not say, A son of Eber rescued us from the Egyptians. They couldn't identify who he was, except he was an Egyptian. Many of us have walked in the world unrecognized as children of the Most High God. Everybody thinks we're just normal Americans. If you did a kind deed for someone, would they say, a son of Jesus rescued us? Or would they say, this wonderful American woman or this wonderful American man rescued us? Now, what you're going to watch are 40 years of being transformed in the desert from an Egyptian into a Hebrew shepherd. It takes some of us 40 years. God chased him into the desert. Gave him a beautiful woman to keep him in the desert. Do you think Moses would have stayed in that desert without a beautiful woman? (laughs) Not a chance. Oh, you should have heard the, te- the, the tongues wag when, when I announced to the church one Sunday morning that I was engaged to be married. 
And in those days, I stood at the door as the crowds passed to congratulate me on my wonderful sermon. And they all were eager to know, what is her name? And I answered, I don't know. Well, who is she? I don't know. Well, what do you mean you're engaged? Jesus told me I was engaged and that he would send her soon. Many said, Pastor, you're crazy, and they left the church. Some stayed because they just wanted to see if I was off the wall. And then when Jan came into my life by the hand of God, they said, you don't even know her and you're going to marry her? Oh, tongues wagged. The gossip channel was wide open. They said to me, Pastor, how do you know you heard from God? Because he spoke audibly to me. God doesn't speak audibly. And many of them left the church. It was beyond their realm of possibility that God could speak audibly to a servant. And five months later, when we were wed, we had to beat people to keep them out of the wedding. No, I'm kidding you. Crowds came. Hundreds came. They wanted to see this. They wanted to be able to say, Pastor, you should have listened to us and taken it slow. Now, you understand, Jan spent those five months in Florida, and I spent them in Washington. This was an arranged marriage. I know why God did it. Because he wanted to chase me into the desert. And he knew I wouldn't go without a beautiful woman. Now, some of you will and have. And I praise God you're more courageous than I. But you also have a church to help walk with you. As we walk in the desert, as God does his work in our hearts... We need to begin to allow Jesus to be curious with us. He's always asking me questions. Always asking me questions. What are you doing, Ray? Do you remember? He asked Elijah some questions. What are you doing here at Mount Horeb, Elijah? He gives his whole string of answers. And then God says again, what are you doing here? In other words, could we get down to the truth now? What are you really doing here? Well, Elijah doesn't learn. He gives him the same string of answers all over again. And God kind of throws up his hands and says, okay, go do this, this, and this. I'm going to bring you home. He knew Elijah had had it. 
He was at the end. He couldn't be curious any longer. The sign that Elijah was at the end was that his curiosity bone was broken. God is calling for a people who will walk like Jesus walked. He is not calling for Egyptians who are full of self-assurance, who know all the answers. He's not looking for a people who rule over others and who try to force others to be like them. He's looking for humble-hearted shepherds who will be curious, who will be gentle of heart, who will allow Jesus to live in them and allow Jesus to ask questions through them without judgments. You see... We have to deal with our sin. Right now we're living in the season of redemption. Soon we'll be living in the season of judgment. And after the season of judgment comes the season of retribution. When there's execution. So right now we live in that season, and it's a very gentle season. It's today is the day of salvation. So you can leave this house today, and you can go and walk like an Egyptian. And the love of Christ is going to pursue you. And he's going to call after you. He's going to call gently. He's going to use curiosity. He's going to use some humor. But the day is coming when judgment will begin to be poured out. And judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And then the season of retribution will come. I want to open for you a passage of scripture. And I ask you please to use your curiosity bone. This walk of holiness I have been confronted on so many times. Emails, letters, even by many of you who have argued with me, withdrawn from me, been antagonistic with me because of my consistent stand regarding righteousness and holiness and repentance. The one scripture that is used more than any other scripture to prove that One cannot live in righteousness 
is 1 John, the first chapter, verse 8. As I stand before you today, I claim to be walking without any sin in my heart. That ignites a fire for some. And the passage of Scripture that is always referenced is if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That has been used so many times to say, Pastor, you cannot live without sin. But I ask you, please, walk with me through this passage of Scripture that I could show you the context of this statement as it was unfolded to me by the Holy Spirit. This was the block that I had for years regarding John Wesley. My family was originally Old Holiness Wesleyan people. Then my family moved away from Wesleyanism, and they adopted the position that every Christian must sin, or the sinning Christian position. What prevented me from returning to the Wesleyan position was this passage of Scripture. I read it, I wept over it, I prayed over it, I said, Lord, I don't understand. It seems to contradict what I read in the rest of the book of 1 John. And so many of you remembered some time back, I asked you to read every day of the week for a month the book in its entirety of 1 John. And many of you did this day after day. You read the book of 1 John until it was coming out of your ears. Let me walk with you through this passage, and I want to show you a teaching rhythm that is used in much of the New Testament. This is not a rhythm of speech that is used in the English language. And so you have to come to this with curiosity. You cannot come to this with the overlay of your very technical English language. You recognize that that Americans are very strange of speech. There are two languages, maybe three, that are the most difficult to learn to speak. Russian, Chinese, and English. And English is so difficult because it is so technological. It is so varied, inconsistent, because we are people of few words, and we speak very conceptually about concrete things. The Hebrews spoke very concretely 
about abstract things. So a Hebrew would not say, look over there. A Hebrew would say, pick up your eyes and look. There was that very physical element in the Hebrew, a concrete element. And for many years, particularly German and American scholars, thought that the Hebrew people were lacking in intelligence. It came as quite a shock when they finally made the discovery that they were speaking about abstract things in concrete forms, an even higher level of intelligence than we had. So let's walk through this and understand the flow, the rhythm of what's being spoken. And once you understand the rhythm, this passage will suddenly become very clear to you. Let's begin with verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Now, here's the first part of the rhythm. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Now the second part of the rhythm begins. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So in the first part of the rhythm, he's saying, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. So he comes out with this powerful statement of judgment. And now he begins to flow with a statement of truth. So he's going to state the lie, then he's going to state the truth. He's going to state the lie State the truth. State the lie. State the truth. He's going to do this all the way through in order. He doesn't break his order or his flow. It's important to know this because contextually you have to understand what the word is saying. You can't just pull a passage of scripture out. For example, by his stripes we are healed. You all know that passage, right? But do you realize that the primary meaning of that passage has nothing to do with physical healing? It has to do from being redeemed from sin. So you have to look at the context of the passage. Now, I'm not saying that it does not also apply to physical healing because it does. By his stripes we are healed. Isaiah was very clear about that. But now follow with me. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Then comes the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I can't tell you how many times I've read this passage. We have fellowship with one another. And I thought it was talking about you and me. But look at the context. 
It says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, that is the father, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That is, we have fellowship with God the father. This is not humanistic. This is fellowship with God the father. And as we fellowship with God the Father, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And that word all in the Greek, it means all, only, every possible sin. We're talking here even about unconscious sin, unknown sin. This is all sin, is broken, purified. Jesus does this work by the blood. Notice then, the next rhythm couplet begins. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the first part of the couplet. The second part of the couplet is in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It is simply a restatement. Now, if you mix this couplet up and you make the first part, the second part, then the truth is, No one can say he's without sin. But you have to read it in the context of the couplet in which he is speaking. So if you go back to verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. The second Couplet beginning with the first part is if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's speaking here about men and women who are not walking with Jesus. He's not talking about a follower of Christ. The second part of the couplet deals with following Christ. And that is, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now the third set of couplets begins. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is, has no place in our lives. So it would be helpful now to read just the first part of each couplet. So that you get the first part and you get the sense of the first part of each couplet. So verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned and make him out to be a liar, his word has no place in our lives. Those are the first parts of the three couplets. But now let's read the answer to each of these in the second half of each of these couplets. Verse 7. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then the second couplet of that that we have not read yet, chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And then again begins another couplet. The man in verse 4, the man who says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. The second half of that couplet is verse 5. But if anybody obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, if you don't understand the cultural Formation of the language. You will read this as an American and pull out verse 8 and say, okay, anybody who says they're not walking in sin is not walking in the truth. It's not possible for us not to walk in sin. This is what I said for years. Because I didn't understand the couplet formation. And so I took out of context the word of God. I want you to hear what an old time commentator, a wonderful man of God, who was a close associate and friend of Wesley. His name is Adam Clark. He was a powerful preacher in his own right and a wonderful commentator. I want to read to you what he says in reference to 1 John 1, 8. As all unrighteousness is sin, so that he is cleansed from all unrighteousness, is cleansed from all sin. To attempt to evade this and plead for the continuance of sin in the heart through life is ungrateful, wicked, and even blasphemous. For he who says he has not sinned makes God a liar, who has declared the contrary through every part of his revelation. So he that says the blood of Christ either cannot or will not cleanse us from all sin in this life gives also the lie to his maker who has declared the contrary and thus shows that the word, the doctrine of God, is not in him. Reader, if the birthright of every child of God is to be cleansed from all sin, to keep himself unspotted from the world, and so to live as never more to offend his maker, all things are possible to him that believeth, because all things are possible to the infinitely meritorious blood and energetic spirit of the Lord Jesus I would urge you to become curious 
and ask God by the Spirit, can I live victoriously, clean, without sin? Is it possible? Oh, and as the glorious message begins to flow in our hearts, where's the program, Jan? I want you to to see the words of this old hymn. It's astonishing. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Well, what's the double cure? The double cure is to be born again, made into a new creature, and then entirely sanctified, washed and made clean, so that I no longer continue to walk in any known sin, trusting in the blood of Jesus to even take the sin I don't know about from my heart. Some have been confused by the translation of several passages in the scripture that seem to indicate that Jesus on the cross became sin for us. Sin is not something that someone can become. Sin is something that someone does. Sin in Scripture is always associated with rebellion against the Most High. There is always a volitional element to all sin. Jesus did not become sin for us on the cross. Jesus took our sin upon himself at the cross. That's a very important distinction. We have to let ourselves be curious and search the scriptures and ask the Holy Spirit for the unveiling of his revelation to us. And as we search the scriptures, he'll suddenly just uncover grand revelations that will open windows of opportunity to come into closer fellowship with the Father. There can be no fellowship with the Father if there is no holiness in the life. The Father will not fellowship with one who is not walking in holiness. The provision of the blood has been made for all of us to be holy before God. The insistence that a Christian must always continue to walk in some of the wickedness of the old nature is to limit the blood of Jesus and to give me an excuse to continue walking in my rebellion. 
When we finally come to a place in our hearts where we say, I have no excuse before God for the condition of my soul, for the bitterness, for the anger, for the, for the judgment, for being an Egyptian. When I finally understand before a righteous God, I have no reason to continue walking in this. But now all the gifts of heaven have been opened for me and poured out to me. And the blood of Jesus is all sufficient. That he never was sin. He has always been righteous and holy. He's always been pure and clean. He is light itself. He is love itself. And for me to then begin to get a hold of that with curiosity. To say, what does God want to do in my life? All of you who are on this journey. God has brought into your life things that anchored you in the wilderness so you don't flee. Many of you would have fled if you could have, but it would have cost you too much to flee. God knew that. He he set it up so it would cost you too much to flee. That's his mercy. I ask you, do you want to go back to the old worldly way of life? No. Do I want to continue and move forward in righteousness? I'm not sure. It's painful. It's costing me everything. It feels like it's endless. It feels like I'm never going to arrive. It feels like this journey is a journey of fruitless emptiness. All I get is this barren desert and this dry sand. All I get is a lack of finance, a lack of recognition, a lack of appreciation, All I do is pour out my heart to try to love and get arrows back. Do I really want to continue this walk? Well, it's going to cost me too much to go back. God made sure of that. So, yes, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to follow Jesus. But sometimes... I follow him like the disciples who said, where else am I going to go? (laughs) If I had somewhere else to go, I might go. But there isn't anywhere else to go. And some of you wish there was some other place to go. Don't I have some other option other than taking up my cross and following Jesus? And then once I start following Jesus, isn't it okay if I continue to have my life a little bit? Do I really have to go to the cross and die? Do I really have to give up everything to follow Jesus? I just want a little of my life. You can't be an Egyptian and follow Jesus. You've got to be made into a shepherd. Well, Jesus, I'd just rather be a sheep and be taken care of. I'd rather have green pastures and still waters. 
And he's saying, no, come on, grow up. Start providing still water for others. Start providing green grass for others. Be a shepherd. Begin to pour your heart out for others. Begin to be like me. I mean, there. can I be honest? There was a time when all I could handle was a green pasture and still water. I was beat up from the journey, and that's all I could deal with. You understand, the children of Israel came out of the bitter waters of Mara, and where did they go? They went to the 70 palms. They went to the still waters and the green pastures. But they didn't get to camp there very long because they had to get on to Mount Sinai. They had a meeting with God. God would not meet with Moses as long as he was dressed like and acting like an Egyptian. Oh, his call was on him. His anointing was upon him. But he wouldn't come and meet with him. Took 40 years in the wilderness. The way you survive the wilderness is by letting your curiosity bone develop and grow. And let the peace of God come into your heart. So that when he does show up, you say, what is this? What's God doing now? Oh, Lord, what are you doing now? Lord, you've called this fellowship to walk before you without sin. But, Lord, we're Egyptians. We've come out of an Egyptian culture. We were trained and dressed as Egyptians. Even inside, we were saying we're Hebrews, but on the outside, we've been Egyptians. And, Lord, you've put some of us in the desert. I've been there almost 40 years, Jesus. Lord, would you bring us through? Would you make us shepherds? That we could care for your people. That we could weep before you for this city. Would you put your tears in us, Jesus? This city doesn't know its left foot from its right foot. Would you put your tears in your shepherds? That we could weep before you for this city. Lord, could we be done with weeping for ourselves? And could we weep for your people?
Lord, I understand we need to weep for our wounds. But I'm asking, would you bring us through that? And would you cause us, oh God, to grow up and to weep for your people? Would you open the scriptures to us? Lord, would you cause this world to no longer have any attraction to us? Lord, the word says that Moses saw him who was eternal. And so he didn't care for the pleasures of the world. Lord, could we see you who are eternal? Could we have a clear revelation of you, Jesus, in all of your glory and majesty, in all of your perfection, in all of your holiness? That we could get past our own wounds and weep before you for your people who are scattered without shepherds, who are wandering in dark and dangerous places, being cut down by the wolves. Lord God, give us tears for your people.
You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Oh.